0: Uh, Like I said, my name is Brandon, though. It's good to be with you. If you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you, uh, we'd love to get to know you. We'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And like Becky was saying, small groups is a great way to do that. If you're a woman, fall favorites. We'd love to just get to help you get plugged in. I uh, also love to invite you into our fall sermon series in the book of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We're just a few chapters into our study, but before we dive into our passage this morning, if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, it's it's really important to understand that the the kind of central recurring theme throughout both of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians is Jesus's Second coming, this day when Jesus promised that he would return personally to earth, that he would eradicate all evil, set all things right, and that he'd usher in his good kingly rule and authority once and for all. And what we see throughout the letters is that the, the reality of that day and the implications of that day, they're, they're woven throughout almost every chapter in these, in these two short letters. But as we've seen, Paul's not just writing these letters to to kind of answer some intriguing questions. He's not just trying to show off his end times trivia knowledge. Uh, Instead, he's trying to help Christians understand how confidence and hope that we can approach Jesus' return with is meant to transform our lives in really profound ways. In other words, the the central theme of Paul's writing to the Thessalonians is about how faith in Jesus' return produces a sanctifying hope in us. The kind of hope for the future that won't just change us someday, but that actively, ongoingly changes us each and every day. It's the kind of hope that causes us to look more and more and more like Jesus. And throughout the first couple of chapters of the letter, we saw how the, the that kind of hope was at work, uh, not only in the Thessalonians, empowering their faith and endurance in the midst of suffering, but it was also evident in Paul himself. It was Clearly the thing that was fueling his life among them, his ministry to them, and his love for them. But as we continue our study this morning in the second half of uh, 1 Thessalonians, what we're going to see is that Paul transitions from reminding and explaining what's happened in the past to instead giving some instructions that pertain to our lives in the future. And see, he's going to be focusing on a number of specific ways that our hope in Jesus' return should be affecting the the way that we live in the present. And what I want to show you as we begin to study chapter 4, is how faith in Jesus' return, it produces a sanctified sexuality in God's people produces a sanctified sexuality in god's people you see knowing jesus living in anticipation of his return it fundamentally transforms the way that we approach and the way that we practice sexuality and now before we even begin i just want to acknowledge on the front end that bringing up the topic of sexuality at church is just awkward for all kinds of reasons right uh For some, it's 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 because it's an area of our lives where what the Bible has to say just flies in the face of everything that our world applauds and celebrates. All right, for others, it's it's difficult because it's an area of our lives that's often associated with deep-seated senses of pain or disappointment or shame or regret and as soon as i mention the word sexuality right uh, things you are or have been struggling with it they pop to mind people friends neighbors coworkers real situations come to mind it's not some abstract far off thing it's real and it's personal additionally Every single one of us, without exception, is tempted to think and to act in ways that are outside of God's good design for our sexuality, and yet at the same time are also very prone to pointing out the ways other people fall short while ignoring the ways that we do. And that's not only causes all kinds of harm to people, but to the reputation of God. And so as we study this morning, we have to be exceedingly careful to begin by asking how God's word confronts and corrects us long before we start to ask how, what about what it might say to somebody else. Otherwise, what's going to happen is we're just going to be full of self-righteousness and pride instead of humility and grace as we ought to be. So lastly, it's, it can be difficult and awkward maybe because you're a parent and your kid's with you here in the room this morning. And I just want to encourage you. Uh, I know that. I have a kid in the room this morning too, right? Uh, and so we'll keep things PG, right? But just spoiler alert, PG does mean parental guidance, right? And so uh, there might be questions that your kids have from this morning, and I want to encourage you, don't shy away from those things. It can be kind of awkward, it can be kind of hard to have those conversations, but I want to encourage you, press in, enter into some of those things. Either the world will disciple your kids in this area, or you will. So join God with what he's doing. Additionally, kids, I just want to encourage you, if you're here this morning, your parents are safe people to talk about these things with right? They love you way more than some random kid at school or some person on the internet, right? Like, uh, they really care about you. And so you can ask them for guidance and help. You can trust them. And so I want to encourage you, go to your folks if you have questions about stuff this morning. So all that to say, on the front end of our time together, I just want to acknowledge that I am sensitive to all those kinds of things. I don't approach our conversation lightly this morning. And what I hope you sense in me as your pastor is a tone and a posture that is characterized by both clarity and compassion. And so that's the way that Jesus talks about these kinds of things. And my prayer is as well, that as we wrestle with what God's word has to say to us about our sexuality, that he would both lovingly convict and encourage us, that, that just as he did amongst the early church in Thessalonica, that he might empower us to be a body of believers whose sexual ethic shines brightly in our world as a testimony to both his glory and his goodness and to the life and to the joy that comes from following him. And so with all that in mind, let's pray and then we'll dive into God's word this morning, see if we can't find the sanctifying hope that faith in Jesus' return produces. So let's pray. Lord God, thanks so much for you. We're grateful for your word. And as we come this morning to study what is just invariably a challenging topic to talk about, God, we ask that you might graciously be going before us and preparing our hearts and uh, empowering me by your spirit to speak and to say what is right and necessary. God, everything in our world just runs counter to your sexual ethic and we ask God that by your grace you might enable us to not only see the distinctions between yours and the world's but that you might help us to see it as good news for us and for the world. So I don't have any power to make that happen at all, but you do. And so I ask God by your spirit that you cause us to see the goodness of your ways and that you'd empower us to live in light of them for your glory, we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, this morning we're going to be in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to read this morning verses 1 through 12, but just as a spoiler alert, we're really only going to be focusing on verses 1 through 8. And that's not because I'm ignoring the last couple of verses, but we're going to Talk about those verses in a couple of upcoming sermons as we address some, some of the, the topics that those are about. It's part of some larger sections in the letter. So we'll come back to them. I'm not skipping them, but we're not going to really talk about them that much this morning. So it begins this way 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. And now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, and that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. For the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. For the the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another. We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. And yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business, work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. All right, so like I mentioned, uh, chapter four kind of marks this turning point in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, and he transitions from remembering and explaining the past to uh, addressing the lives of Christians in the present. And at the very heart of Paul's exhortations to the Thessalonians in these verses is, is the assertion that knowing God and living in anticipation of his return, it doesn't just change the way you think. It doesn't just change your mind. It doesn't just change what you you believe but it is something that utterly transforms the way you actually live what you do verse one he says as for other matters brothers and sisters we instructed you how to live See, Paul is saying that faith in Jesus and his return doesn't just change your mind, it changes your whole life, including, as we'll see in the coming weeks, the way that you love and serve people, our attitudes towards work, the way that we deal with death, how we relate to leaders that God's placed in our lives, how we deal with conflict, how we approach correction and encouragement with fellow Christians, just to to name a few things we'll see. But as we read this morning, the area of our lives Paul addresses first is our sexuality. And as we take a look at the way Paul describes how our relationship with Jesus and our anticipation of his return should shape our lives, uh, what I want to do, and shape the way that we practice our sexuality, what I want to do is highlight for you four distinctions, four key differences in the way that people who know God view and use sex versus the way that people who don't know God view and use it. Four distinctions. The first one is simply this. Number one, people who know God see sex as a good gift from God. People who know God see sex as a good gift from him. See, in the world today, people tend to kind of take two main approaches towards sex, right? One, they either just deify it, right? Like sex is the most, the single most important ultimate thing in your life. And if you don't have that, if you don't have freedom with that, you can't be happy, you can't be satisfied, you don't have an identity, you don't have meaning in your life. Like sex is the way you find all of that kind of stuff, right? In other words, people tend to view sexuality as God itself, and just, spoiler, that's nothing new. Paul is writing in and to a culture for whom sexual, like that was a part of the actual worship services for the vast majority of people, right? So seeing this kind of deification of sex, that, that's nothing new. But some people take the exact opposite approach, right? And they kind of see it as this really gross thing, right? It's like a necessary evil of the process of procreation, right? It's so dirty or scary that you should make sure you save it for the one person you're ever going to be forced to do it with for the rest of your life, right? And the reality is that the Bible teaches neither of those things. It doesn't teach either of them Look with me at verse 3. Paul writes, he says, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Did you notice how he didn't say, he doesn't say, it's God's will that you be sanctified, so avoid sex altogether. He doesn't say that. You see, sanctification, increasing Christ-like holiness, it doesn't look like avoiding sex altogether, it looks like avoiding sexual immorality. And we'll get to that phrase more in a minute. But for now, what's really important that you see is that the Bible doesn't present sex as this godlike ultimate thing to be pursued at any cost. And it also doesn't present it as this gross thing to be avoided as much as possible. Instead, the Bible sees sexual intimacy as this good gift and blessing to be celebrated and enjoyed. For example, in the Song of Solomon, it's a duet between two lovers. It begins this way. It says, let, me kiss, uh, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Take me away with you. Let's hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Right, the PG version of Proverbs 5, verses 18-19 says this, May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. May she satisfy you always, and may you ever be intoxicated with her love. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul specifically instructs husbands and wives not to withhold sexual intimacy from one another, but instead to gladly and generously give themselves to one another. You see, people tend to think that the Bible has like a really low view of sex and God just needs to loosen up and realize how great it is and then the world would just be a much better place. But that's actually just the opposite of what's true. You see, the Bible has an extremely high view of that. God created it. He created the desire for it, the pleasure in it, the unity of it, the joy it brings. God is for it. While it's true that God created sex as a good gift for us to enjoy, the Bible is also clear that God has placed boundaries around how this good gift should be used. That brings us to the second distinction that knowing God creates in our sexual ethic. It's this. See, knowing God leads us to practice sexuality within its God-given boundaries. It leads us to practice sexuality within its God-given boundaries. See, you and I, we live in a world where the one and only boundary line for sex is consent. That's the only line. In the Roman world that Paul's writing in into, that line didn't even exist. Right? One commentator summed up the culture Paul's writing to this way. He says, there has probably never been a period in history when sexuality was more extravagant or uncontrolled than it was under the Caesars. Another commentator adds this, it was widely accepted that men either either could not or would not limit themselves sexually. A man might have a mistress who could provide him also with intellectual companionship. The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine. And while casual gratification was readily available from a prostitute, the function of his wife was merely to manage his household and to be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. See, it's in the face of this kind of utterly unhinged unhindered roman sexual ethic that paul urges christians he says to avoid literally the word there is actually to to be completely cut off from sexual immorality and that term sexual immorality it's it's basically a junk drawer term that the new testament writers use to describe any and all sexual activity outside of its god-given boundaries Twice in the passage, Paul makes really clear that, that these, the boundary lines that he's given them, the instructions that he's given them, they're not his. It's not like he came up with a list of how it should work and where the lines were and what was okay and what wasn't okay. He says, listen, listen, I didn't come up with the list. I didn't make the lines. God did. He says in verse 2, For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Verse 8, Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction doesn't reject a human being but God himself. Paul's saying, I do not have the authority to set the line, neither do you. God is the one who designed it. He's the one who made it. He gets to set the lines. So what is the boundary line? Well, from beginning to the end, the Bible is repeatedly, emphatically, abundantly clear that the boundary line for God's design for sexuality is inside the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. No matter what kind of linguistic gymnastics you try to do, you just cannot get around that. That's the point. And so when Paul says that Christians should avoid sexual immorality, he's talking about any and all sexual activity with anyone who is not your spouse, whether that happens before marriage or during marriage or after marriage. And people tend to ask, well, what if, like, what if we don't go all the way? Like, what, what, if, what, if, what if we just kind of go part of the way, right? Well the Bible would say, if what you are doing is sexual, then it's reserved for the context of marriage. Well, what if we're engaged? Well, again, um, that's different than being married, being married. So no, that would fall outside the lines. Well, what about same-sex marriage or about polyamorous relationships? And again, the boundary line in Scripture is one man, one woman. Inside the context of marriage. And people sometimes say, well, Jesus never talked about any of the LGBT anything. He never addressed any of that. But the truth is, is that a bunch of times in the Gospels, Jesus affirms the boundary line for sex being exclusively between a man and a woman who are married. In fact, Jesus takes sexual sin one step further. He says in Matthew 5, he said, You've heard it said that you shall shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, we tend to think that sexual immorality is all about what you do with your hands. But God says long before it gets to your hands, it's something going on in your heart. He says it's sinful even to look at someone who is not your spouse and entertain sexual thoughts about them. And that would obviously include things like pornography and masturbation as well as things like emotional affairs, lusting after someone who is not your spouse, cultivating emotional support structures with someone who you're not married to, especially if there's an aspect that is private and personal. See, Jesus is saying that it's not, it's just, even if we don't commit the physical act, we're still guilty of sexual sin by means of our thoughts and our fantasies, our reading, our clicking, our affections, right? And that kind of a sexual ethic is obviously radically different than the one we are swimming in in the world around us today. But the question that you have to ask, it's so important that we do this. The question that you have to ask is not, how is it different? right? The, the how is real obvious. The question that you have to ask is, why? Why is it different? Right? Why are God's people supposed to avoid sexual immorality? Why should we cut ourselves off from any and all sexual activity outside the context of marriage? Why should we do that? See, our world wants us to believe that marriage and that sex are ultimately things that are about us, right? They're about our happiness. They're about our joy. They're about our satisfaction and our fulfillment and our pleasure. And because they're about you, you should feel free to use them and practice them however you see fit, as long as you're not hurting someone else. And yet from the very beginning, the Bible paints an altogether different picture of the purpose of both sex and marriage. David Platt writes it this way, he says, we are swimming in a cultural ocean that cries out with every wave, gratify yourself. But what if we haven't ultimately been created for self-gratification? What if instead we've actually been created for God-glorification? And even better, what if God-glorification is actually the way to experience the greatest satisfaction? See, that leads us to the third distinction that we're gonna see in our passage this morning. Right. See, a, a Christian believes that the ultimate purpose of sex is about God glorification, not personal satisfaction. See, in other words, a Christian sees that our sexuality is not about pleasing ourselves, but rather it's about pleasing God. Verse one, Paul again, he instructs them, we, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. That's the point. That's the whole purpose. See, you and I, we tend to see marriage and sex as an end in and of itself. But the Bible says that marriage and sexuality, those are a means to a greater end. That they're a means of pointing to a greater reality, of revealing something about God and his nature and his character to the world. See, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it teaches that humanity is made in God's image, which means that unlike any other part of creation, we have the unique ability to know and reflect God's nature and character in the world. And men and women, uh, Genesis makes clear, are, are, are both made in God's image and created to reflect him. There is incredible equality amongst men and women in the Bible. And yet there's also... Genesis makes clear a real and meaningful diversity, difference. See, just as much as Genesis emphasizes the equality of men and women made in God's image, it also emphasizes the distinction between men and women. And that difference is not an added bonus, it's not a happy accident, nor is it a liability or it's a necessity. See, in Genesis chapter 2, 18, God says it this way, it's not good for the man to be alone. He says, I'll make a helper suitable for him. See, that should really shock you. Because over and over again in Genesis 1, God makes something and says it's good. And here we see it's not until both men and women are present that creation is good. It's not very good until both men and women are there. Why? Because in order for humanity to live out our identity as God's image-bearing representatives, we need men and women. We need one another. Adam couldn't do it alone. He needed a helper. And just to clarify, that word helper, it doesn't mean assistant. It it refers to a necessary and indispensable ally. Necessary and indispensable. See, but who God creates as man's necessary ally is not just another one who is just like him. See, because humanity needed both sameness and difference. They need, we needed both equality and diversity to bear God's image. You see, in order to live out our identity and purposes God's image bears, we need both sameness and difference. And that's because the God whose image we bear, whose likeness we reflect, is characterized that way. In Genesis, when God talks about creating humanity, he's referred to in the plural. He says, let us make mankind in our image You see, God is Trinity, and just as there is one Trinity with multiple distinct parts, Father, Son, and Spirit, so there is one humanity with multiple distinct parts, men and women. There is both sameness and difference, and Genesis 2 verse 24 says it this way, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. See, the very purpose for God's design for our sexuality is that it is one of the ways in which humanity uniquely bears his image and reflects his nature. And so in the physical union of a husband and a wife, of a man and a woman who are equal and yet distinct, there is a picture of the incredible unity and equality and diversity in the Godhead himself. See, sex is not ultimately about our pleasure. It's about revealing God's nature as we live out our identity as his image bearers. But it's more than just showing uh, his nature. It's about showing his character. See, over, over and over again, in the Old Testament, God's constantly saying, I'm a husband and Israel is my bride. In the New Testament, Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And what characterizes God as a husband and as a bridegroom right, is an unrelenting covenant faithfulness to his bride. God has committed himself to his people. He has given himself to them wholly. And what's happening in marriage is that a husband and a wife are telling each other, I am giving myself wholeheartedly to you. I'm not holding anything back. I'm giving you all of myself. And sex is one of the ways that spouses express that unhindered commitment You see, in that kind of vulnerable and exposed intimacy, we're showing our spouse that we belong to them. And the unity that comes from sexual intimacy inside those confines and the security and the commitment of a marriage, it is unequaled. It's a reflection of the intimacy that God has with his people. And that's why sex is always reserved for marriage. Because again, it's about proclaiming something about God. And so marriage and sex are good gifts given for a good purpose. They're not about you, though. They're good gifts for you, but they're not about you. They're actually about God, and so their purpose is to reveal something about Him to the world. And what happens is when we see that our sexuality ultimately is about God glorification, it won't just lead us to practice it within God's boundaries, It will see as well that it will lead us to practice our sexuality with his heart. That's the fourth thing I want to show you this morning. See, knowing God and living anticipation of Jesus' return, it doesn't just change the boundary lines for sexuality amongst God's people, it transforms the very heart and character of our sexual ethic. Look again at verses 4 through 6 with me. Paul says each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. See, Paul contrasts here self-control with passionate lust, and he contrasts holiness and honor with wronging and taking advantage of someone else. Essentially what he's saying is that when you know God and when you live in accordance with his sexual ethic, your sexuality will be characterized by a self-control that honors God and that honors people, not a lust-driven passion that just uses or abuses people. You see, God's sexual ethic isn't a self-centered, demanding approach to sex, but instead a self-giving others approach to it. It's an approach that fundamentally begins not by asking what pleases you, but about what pleases God and what pleases your spouse. And what makes Marriage and sex so great is when each of you is thinking about the needs of the other ahead of your own. Philippians 2 says that that's the kind of mindset you get from Jesus. So often I think the trouble is that we, we live in a world that, that says that sex is always about you, right? That it's universally about self. And the question is just like, how can, how can a others-focused, selfless approach to sexuality, how can that even be good? One commentator sums it up this way. He says, The idea of selflessness here seems contradictory. Does not getting the most out of this activity require putting your own desires ahead of everything else? The surprising answer is no. Both on biblical terms and based on human experience, God has embedded a paradox in how this kind of pleasure works so that helps to restrain the natural human selfishness. The more a couple focuses on pleasing each other, the more enjoyment each will receive. And the more a person focuses on demanding his or her own satisfaction, the less will be possible. For self-centeredness always destroys satisfaction in this arena. Unselfishness always makes it better. See, at the heart of these verses is this call that we might see God's good design for our sexual intimacy as an opportunity for which we get to serve others rather than gratify ourselves. And that's why, among with a list of reasons I do not even have the time to begin listing, why things like pornography and masturbation are really serious problems. I came across this week a quote by C.S. Lewis who was writing to a young man in the early 1900s about this. It's not a new thing. He says it this way, the real evil of these things is that they take an appetite which was intended to lead us out of ourselves and instead sends us back into the prison of ourselves, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against us ever getting out and really uniting with our spouse, for the harem is always accessible, always subservient. It calls for no sacrifices, no adjustments. It can be endowed with all kinds of attractions with no woman could rival. Among these shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is ever made on his unselfishness. No mortification ever imposed on his vanity. For in the end, they become merely a medium through which we increasingly adore ourselves. You see, Pornography is an inherently self centered, self focused way to act sexually. And it runs in every way at odds with the God's good design for it. Besides the fact that it will destroy you, it runs at odds with God's good design. But porn isn't the only selfish way to practice sexuality. Right, oftentimes spouses use sex as a kind of currency in their marriages. Right, whether it's withholding sex to get your spouse to do something you want, or to punish them for not doing something you wanted them to do, or using it to to get your spouse to agree to something you want to see happen, those things are self-focused views of sex that they run counter to everything that God says about its purpose in the first place. And not only will engaging in these kinds of practices ruin the good gift of sex in your marriage. Instead of showing each other and the world what God is actually like, it all it does is, is shout lies about him. See, in verse 6, when Paul says that no one should take advantage of a brother or sister, the word that he uses there is the word that means to defraud someone. See, when we practice sexuality in self-centered, lust-driven ways, we are not only demeaning people who are made in God's image, we are selling them lies about who God is and what He's like. We need to take that as seriously as God does, and I hope what you see in the passage is that He takes it absolutely seriously. At the end of verse six, right? God's image bears lying about him is something he will not stand for. For the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. See, the truth about God is that he has proven he is the exact opposite of a selfish lover. More than that, he has proven that he is the most self giving being of all. See, that leads me to the last thing I want to mention this morning. See, where do you get the kind of strength and motivation to live out that kind of a sexual ethic? How do we avoid sexual immorality? How do we cut ourselves off completely from this type of sin? Well, anyone who has ever struggled with it knows that the answer is not found in head-level information right, about what you should or should not be doing. Knowing the boundary lines and the ethos of God's sexual ethic is really important, but spoiler alert, knowing that stuff is not enough to change you knowing the line, the only thing knowing the line can do is leave you guilty when you don't follow it. So how do we actually obey? How do we grow in Christ-like holiness? How do we become increasingly characterized by a sanctified Christ-like sexuality? How do you do it? Well, the only way you find the strength and the motivation to do it is when you see that Jesus has embodied that kind of pure sexual ethic for you. J.D. Greer puts it this way, what we crave in sex we find in Jesus. For there is only one kiss and one set of arms that can fill our heart's desires. He is the ultimate beauty. He is the intimacy our soul craves. And when you find him, then you have the power to say no to the other. Famous Puritan preacher Thomas Chalmers, he called this, I've, I've quoted this so many times to you, but I, it never gets old. He talked about this as the expulsive power of a new affection. He writes, he says, neither you nor anyone else can dispossess the heart of an old affection. The heart is not so constituted. The only way to dispossess of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And if that new affection be the love of God, it shall draw the heart of the sinner towards him. See, what he's trying to say is that the only way that you overcome the strong desires of, of sexual sin is, that, is not by ignoring them, is not by just like trying really hard, is instead by replacing them, by overshadowing them with a stronger affection. See, being captivated by the love and the glory of Jesus, that's the one thing that gives you power and strength to overcome those desires. Knowing the line can't do it. You need to know the line because that's the one we have to obey, but it doesn't give you the power to do it. It's only when you see Jesus doing it for you. And not even when you were trying to obey him, but when you were running from him. See, the only motivation that empowers us to actually pursue that kind of sexual purity before marriage and sexual fidelity in marriage is by responding to Jesus's purity and faithfulness to you. You see, Jesus' faithful love for us, right, when we see him dying in our place, on our behalf, for our sins, what we see him doing is we see the story of redemption, we see his selfless love for us, and what happens is we want to tell that story. Just like we sung about this morning in the new song that we were singing, we want our lives to be a proclamation of his story of life and redemption, because Jesus' faithful love for us, we want to tell the story of his love being displayed in our our own purity and fidelity and so what happens is when you see jesus's purity for you when you see his faithfulness to you in spite of all your impurity and unfaithfulness to him when you see all that he gave up for you when you see all he sacrificed when you see that he did it not begrudgingly but out of love for you it fills your heart with the kind of longing and power that you need to obey And you will long to be sexually pure for him. And you'll want the world to know that although we have betrayed him, he has never betrayed us. And we will begin to live in such a way where his beauty and his glory becomes our overwhelming desire. You see, it's the self-giving, substitutionary death of Jesus in our place that we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion and reminding ourselves about his body and his blood, broken and shed for us, that he received the penalty our sin deserved, that he became impure so that we might be made pure. And so if you put your trust in Jesus to be your savior and your king, or you do for the first time this morning, then I want to encourage you during our time of worship, go back and take communion and dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of all that you put your faith in Jesus to be and to do for you, of his body and blood broken and shed so that you might be made pure. But if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus Maybe you're still figuring out what following him means or you're realizing you kind of just have this head level of familiarity with him that's not changing your life in any real meaningful ways or, or you still have all kinds of doubts and I just want you to know you are welcome here and your questions are welcome and your doubts are welcome but I want to encourage you to hold off on taking communion. See, God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions. He's after a heart that trusts in him completely. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is and River City is and we want to help you know him. And so wherever you're at this morning, as we take communion, as we sing, as we remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you to talk with God. See, some of you are here this morning, and the real problem is not that your sexual ethic runs completely counter to God's, but it's that your counter-God sexual ethic reveals you don't know him at all. And the invitation is not merely that you would conform your sexual ethic to his to avoid some kind of eternal punishment, but that you would come to know and trust him to be for you and to give to you what sex can never do. And to in turn be filled with his spirit who transforms you not from the outside in but from the inside out. And who empowers you by his spirit to lead you to pursue his sexual ethic. Others of you are here though and you do know God. And yet there is room for your sexual ethic to increasingly grow in reflecting his. Maybe you are here this morning and you are realizing that there is a lot of room for that kind of Maybe you're here this morning and you are feeling stuck in sexual sin. You are feeling controlled by it, overwhelmed by it. You want out, but you can't get there. And I want to encourage you this morning. You cannot fight those battles by yourself. It never works. But I also want to encourage you to come talk to me or to Aaron or to your small group leaders and what I can guarantee you will find is not guilt and shame, but is the grace and compassion of Jesus himself. And we're not going to affirm a sexual ethic outside of God's boundaries or heart, but I can guarantee you we will love you well, and we will walk alongside you as together we seek to conform ourselves to God's sexual ethic as a community. see the truth is that there is room for all of us to grow in this area did you notice how paul he brings this issue up with the thessalonians not because it is destroying their lives and their community right he actually tells them hey we gave you instructions about this uh you're doing great with that he says do so more and more He says, you're heading in the right direction, but keep going. You see, sexual sanctification, like all sanctification, is an ongoing process. And all of us, without exception, all of us, have room to keep growing in that area. See, Paul addresses this area first. We're going to see him bring up a lot of other stuff, but he addresses this area first because he knows the power of sex. Sex is like nuclear energy. It has the power to to put the lights on in a nation, and it has the power to utterly disintegrate a nation. The difference is in how you use it. See, but it's not just a powerful force in our lives. It is a powerful force in our testimony to the world, you see, the sexual ethic of the early church was every bit as starkly contrasted to the, to the own sexual ethic of our world. And historians, what you'll find if you do reading in the history, what you'll find is that, is that one of the primary reasons why Christianity swept through the Roman world is because uh, people who followed Jesus lived in accordance with his sexual ethic and it was seen as good news. Not in the beginning, but eventually. In a letter written in the second century to a guy named Diognetus, the author describes Christians in the following way. He says, For they are distinguished from other men, neither by country or language, nor by customs which they observe. And yet, inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, they display to us their wonderful They display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. For they marry and beget children as all do, yet they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. And they are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. And they are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. For they pass their days on earth. Yet they live as citizens of heaven. See, church, it was not the, the clarity of their communicated theological conventions that captivated the Roman world. It was the consistency of the compelling reality of their sanctified lives that people experienced. See, what the world so desperately needs what theirs and what ours, is not a people who will tell them that their own sexual ethic is wrong, but a people who will show them by living out God's own sexual ethic in such a consistent way, its inherent beauty and goodness, that it will shine so brightly and beautifully that they will come looking for the hope it brings. You see, deep down, the world knows that their sexual ethic doesn't work. Every single data... All the data points, all the studies, all of it shows that people are not more happy, they're not more fulfilled, they're not more satisfied, that the unhinged, unfettered sexual ethic of our world, it doesn't give what it says it gives. And people know that. Deep down they do, and I think what they are hoping for is that someone might show them a new, a new way. To your friends and neighbors and coworkers, they are desperate for people to show them the kind of life and joy and peace and fulfillment that comes from practicing sexuality in God's ways. And here's the reality, church. If we give up on God's sexual ethic, if we neuter it, if we flex on it, if we let it just be, ah, we'll see what happens, we will not just be rejecting God's word, we will be forfeiting our ability to show him to the world. You see, the sexual ethic of God's people is meant to shine in the darkness of a world as a beacon of hope. That shows there is a great God whose love for his people is so pure, so committed, so utterly holy, that it transforms people from the inside out. Might we be a people who live out God's sexual ethic, not because it's better, it is, but because our world needs it and because God is worthy of it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I have gone long. (laughs) Oh, but my heart, Lord Jesus, that you might take whatever I have said that's from you and cause it to sink deeply into people's hearts. God, might you forgive us of our own sexual sin. And might you give our church a kind of purity and holiness in our sexual ethic that is both just incredibly bright and incredibly beautiful. God, and we ask that you might fill us with your spirit so that we'll have everything we need to live out your sexual ethic in our world. And we pray that you'd empower us to do that. God, for our good and for the good of our neighbors and our coworkers and our kids, for the nations, Lord Jesus. And most of all, so that you might be glorified as a people who have been saved by you. Live not to please ourselves, but to please you. We pray, amen.